The bell's rung for round one of the Icon Showdown podcast. I'm your trusty host, Enan Hennigan, and with me today is the one and only Chris Pagnozzi. You might know him from his own podcast, Monster Pulse and Set in Horror. Chris, how are we feeling today? Outstanding. Of course, of course. No, I appreciate you being on this premiere episode. Hopefully it'll be fun. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with what the Icon Showdown podcast does, is we try to determine which is the most iconic of a year. Uh, this first month, we're doing mainstream horror, uh, but following that, all genres and mediums might apply. So, um, this week, we are going to be talking about, um, or today rather, 1988's films, The Blob versus Child's Play. And why these two films were chosen is because there's a certain criteria set uh, when we were deciding what films should go head-to-head, um, namely being non-sequels, we will allow reboots as long as they're notably different. Um, and they essentially have to have some sort of resonance in the culture. They have to be known entities uh, more than anything else. And certainly have done well enough at the box office to be in the upper echelon, at least top five. So within that top five of earning, which are the two that are the best to pit against each other. So how we're going to do this is we have six different categories and we will be scoring them um, on a four pentagram scale. So the first category that we're talking about is the antagonist, the big bads. Why not start with the villain? Um, so we're going to start right off the bat here with The Blob, because I do believe The Blob came out before uh, Child's Play. The Blob was released August 5th of 1988, directed by Chuck Russell. Um, and it was based, uh, it looks like The Blob was based on a story by Theodore Simpson and Kay Lineker. Um, okay, so let's talk about the big blob bad. What are your initial reactions? Is this something that actually scared you as a person? No. Why? Um, well, I'll tell you. It's I personally don't see this giant gelatinous thing that, all that terrifying. I mean, um, I, I really appreciated the monster, and the special effects in this movie were, were really, really good, considering your main villain here is, is a giant blob. Indeed. Um, I didn't find it scary, but I felt it was very exciting, you know? Absolutely. So even that tension in the scenes I thought were really good, but I didn't ever get scared. Okay, I see what you're saying. Uh, it doesn't have a face. It doesn't show right. emotions in the same way a normal villain might. However, for me, when we're looking at the motivations of this bad guy... Um, to me, it's mindless consumption, and that's scary. When you have an entity that you can't understand where it's coming from, it's ultimately like an animal more than it's like a normal villain that we might deal with. Um, and it's desire to just embiggen at all costs. It needs biological materials, no matter what, um, and not necessarily for survival. My question is, do you think the blob could go on as a little little blob, like a little blob? or? Well, I does it need sustenance to survive? Yes. It does. It does, and every time it consumes somebody, that's how it gets larger. What would happen if it went unchecked and continued to expand forever? It would consume the whole Earth. It would consume the whole Earth? Yes. What happens when it runs out of biologic material? Is it going to just dry up? Well, I, I, I don't believe it needs air, necessarily. Um, it, it, having been in space, granted it was encapsulated, but mm -hmm. I think that this um, organism, or whatever you want to refer to it as, could then just move on to the next planet. I see. Okay. Um, my question is, is the pink the right color for it? <laughs> is, does pink help the scare factor? No. No, I don't think it does. It kind of gave it a weird, almost brain-like um, chewing gum look. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, did, you, did you find what was scary? I, I was trying to think if there would be a better color to scare me more, and I looked back at the 1955 original version, and that really looks like a melted cherry Jolly Rancher. Yeah. And I kind of like the dark reddish hue. It seemed a little more like blood yeah. consistency. But I got to say that the pink kind of worked for me because it looked like fleshy and yeah. more biological, more more pulpy and visceral, um, like the insides of us. And right. when we talk more about the metaphor of what this blob might represent, um, it having no shell and being like our raw inners, I felt was something when you know you dig deep yeah. that it is a little scary. And as it grows, it gets more amorphous. Yes, yeah. granted, it does have the chewing gum effect, but it ironically seems less scary to me the bigger it got. Yeah, agreed. To me, there was like this this perfect zone of of when it really hit me hard. Yeah, I I completely agree. Just really quick back to the color. I think the other thing 
electronic research is that you can see what was inside of it. The people it's consumed, the the items that's in it, like the, the class ring that you see. Mm-hmm. Um, but to your other point, yeah, I think when it was smaller and it could move around, or it could it actually even have the ability to hide within a human. Oh, yes. Scary. Yes, I'm totally with you there. And I also do think it's interesting that you are able to see through the pink to even the sheriff's face. Yes. Um, yes. That's pretty much the only like solid figure because for the most part, it seemed like people got like ruined immediately. So I was a little confused by that moment yeah. when his face seemed so together yeah. still. Granted, it was when he Just was seeing his girlfriend, Fran. Um, Right. Granted, she's on the phone trying to get a hold of the sheriff at the time we see this face. So in theory, he was just slurped up while he was looking for her. So maybe it just didn't get that time to break down. Um, So is there another color that might have been scarier, do you think? Do you think like an amorphous venom-like blob? um, Pure blackness? a a yellow, like an effective neon yellow. Almost like um, if you were to look at one of the villains from Sin City, the... uh, character who's almost like glowing yellow okay yeah um i think that could be kind of scary yeah i'm with you uh i i definitely find it scarier than the 1955 version if they were to reboot this now do they go with the pink still i think they do you think they stick with the pink almost as like a um just like a a connection to the original like oh i mean it almost could look a little bit more like a swamp thing if it goes to green you could see I feel like in uh, modern cultural uh, offerings, especially this summer, July 4th, we saw the reboot of The Blob, in a way. I'm alluding to Stranger Things Season 3, That's true. which I feel like is the closest I've seen since the 1988 Blob to this mass that integrates biologic matter mm-hmm. and yeah. gets bigger and bigger as it does and scarier and scarier. But what was, what was the consistency of that one? That's more like a, a black. It was... Yeah, black, I, yeah, I I think, yeah, almost black and like um, almost like translucent. Well, let's talk about how scary it was in terms of the vocalizations and the audible nature of this big bad. Um, the slurping and sloshing were they effective for you? Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think especially if you were to see this in a, in a movie theater, it would have been effective with the surround sound. Agreed. Was there any moment or? Uh, a set piece that you felt like really highlighted its audibility in a, in a scary way more than others? Great question. For me, it was the sewer because it kind of had like a Jaws moment there where you don't see it, but you see the water splashing every yeah. once in a while. So is it the water or is it the blob? Because they do have right. that similar sort of like yeah, sounds. And there are, of course, some like crunchy crackling noises that it makes as well. I'm assuming that's got to be uh, bones the bones yeah. disintegrating Reasons, within it. Uh, Okay, as we let's let's wrap up uh, talking about the Blob himself, and I want to just ask you, how original do you think this is? I mean, granted, it is based on the 1950 reboot, but let's even consider the 1950 the initial Blob as a villain, the originality of that, and in, in the grand scheme of things. Well, I, I, I think it was probably scary in the 50s because it was. I'm not sure if you know this, but it was based off of an actual event. What? No. So there was these two officers outside of Philadelphia who. Um, saw something fall from the sky. They approached oh. it and they actually cracked it open and there was a, a goo. Um, it, they said it smelled, but it um, it touched one of their skin and, and I think he was fine. But I think, especially back then, the state of hysteria um, it, I bet you the origin of that was probably pretty terrifying. I bet you could have actually happened. What's scarier than the unknown, right? That goes right. all the way back to Beowulf. And Grendel, right? Living outside. You don't know his motivations. You don't know what he wants. Um, So let's talk about Child's Play because we're going head-to-head here. The Blob is taking on Child's Play, which should be deemed the most iconic of 1988, the one that wins the year. So we got to look at Chucky, obviously, um, and his motivation. So if the Blob is just mindlessly consuming, engineered to do so, to just destroy biologic matter, what does Chucky want? Why does he kill? Why does he do what he does? Uh, well, I think it's um, rooted in his, uh, I want to say past life as uh, Charles Lee Ray, who was the um, the strangler, right? Indeed. So I think he was just a, a monster in, you know, in human form and, and just actually enjoyed killing. Okay, so we have a psychopath on our hands here. 
um, who actually thinks and premeditates his kills. My question is to you, at the beginning opening scene, we see him get killed, Charles, Charles Lee Ray, um, at the Toy Story. And then he does his voodoo to get him to pop into Chucky's body. But he does have a partner. Uh, and that's kind of strange for normal serial killers. What do you think was up with that? Do you think they just needed to have him have no. a little revenge story there? or? I think so. And, and I think, uh, from what I remember Don Mancini, the screenwriter, talking about it, it was not in his script. This was something that director Tom Holland um, added in. And uh, oh, that's interesting. caused a lot of, lot of issues. Um, between the, the creative process. I think you're right, though. I think you nailed it. I think they needed um, to give him another task. Yeah, I think it actually gives him another layer. It makes, in a weird way, you're almost sympathetic. You're almost rooting for, I mean, if one of the bad guys is going to mm -hmm. kill the other one, you want to not live, you know? And it also gave him this whole revenge mentality because at the very start of the film, when um, Chris Sarandon's character, the police officer, is chasing him down, he, he basically promises to get revenge on both of them. Partner mm. and the cop. Indeed, played by Chris Sarandon, Chris Sarandon, who is Julia Roberts' brother, I believe. Uh, Am I crazy about that? No, I think you're right. Uh, his half brother, um, which is interesting. Yeah, All the nepotism out there. Oh, that's right, that's right. Okay, so we have Chucky's motivations being revenge, a selfish desire to become human again at all costs, yes. which happens in the last, the third act of the film. Um, but then it's really all rooted in his own psychosis. We have just a cold-blooded killer here. What do you think about his aesthetic? So if we have this amorphous, faceless blob versus pretty much the antithesis of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was basically to um, strike uh, hysteria into parents, you know, that um, child uh, safety. But it was because you could just purchase this and it was so familiar and cute and cuddly that you would never suspect this doll that is adorable. Is it? Is it though? Totally, he starts moving. Is around. it? He is a picture on the shelf where he's like, "I want to be your friend in the end." And there's the cartoon in the beginning. Like, yes. Okay. So he's made to be certainly uh, attachable. You know, you got that parasocial relationship yeah. going on between Andy and him via the kids show. Um, right. We both we both have sisters. Yes. Grew up with a lot of dolls in the house, right? Yes. Were you comfortable with those dolls? I mean, if there is going to be something you imbue consciousness into, wouldn't you want something that is, you know? human-shaped to a degree? Right, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it's very um, terrifying. I, I think dolls, again, the unknown, uh, something that you're familiar with coming to life is, is terrifying. Do you think they had uh, lower standards for cuteness back in the late 80s versus maybe well, what we would expect now? Uh, potentially. I, I think they, they, they talked about, Don Mancini actually talked to the special effects Kevin Yeager about um, making him familiar, like what mm. was going on at the time with the Cabbage Patch Kids, right? And, um, oh, and the teddy bear they talked to yeah, at the time, right? Well, then, and then there's also the um, oh man, there was the actual uh, toy line, uh, My Buddy. Oh, and My Buddy was something that was was very popular, and then this sort of destroyed that entire business. They wow, recovered from it because kids started getting scared. So. This, it was mimicking, art was mimicking real life. Wow, in this day and age, they'd probably get sued, right? Yes, yes, Damn. Um, vocalization. Let's talk about Brad Dorif because it's kind of interesting. We do have a case here where there was a reboot just two months ago right. um, where you got a Mark Hamill voice. Uh, but the new one's a robot. We have Brad Dorif as Charles Lee Ray in this body. Yes. What do you think about the voice? Do you find his voice actually horrifying or is yes, it... You, why? I, I, smart to, to show him in the beginning and, and like how ruthless he was and kind of how skinny mm. he was but his voice is um man it's commanding it's it's so sassy too especially when you put it into the doll i think it gave that character a whole new layer like it was very adult I'm with you there. I think the voice is very very effective in the doll once it's in the doll but i don't necessarily Mary in my head, the way he appears at the beginning. I see what you're saying with the scumminess and all of that. Like but I hear, I hear, yeah. And I don't hear that voice matching his aesthetic as a human sort of thing. Um, and I'm certainly biased by the other roles that I've seen him in. Um, certainly most profoundly in Deadwood, where he's really kind of a meek yeah. character. Um, so it, it, I, I do think he's probably the most iconic voiceover in horror ever. Does anybody compete? I was trying to think, is there anyone... Ready? Is that voiceover well, though? You know, because it's so different from 
Robert England's appearance. Okay, but, that makes but sense. No, I, I don't disagree with you. I, I, I think you're. It's very iconic. Are we supposed to relate with Chucky? Are we supposed to sympathize with him at all, ever? No. Never? I don't believe so. Why do we get first-person perspective views? Is that just ripping off Michael Myers? Michael Myers. That's a, that's a technique. Okay, so there's there's no the tonal variability, us understanding his want for desire against another bad guy, is just his desire to have human form again. We don't have any context for his what, what led him down the dark trail to begin right. with as Charles Lee Ray. Um, so you got no sympathy for him, huh? No, I don't. Fair enough. No, he's a sociopath. Yeah, he's a psychopath. So I get it. I guess uh, his dynamic voice work at times made me think, you know what, baby? Maybe Chuck is maybe not a bad guy. Maybe he's just uh, misunderstood. <laughs> uh, okay, all right. So that's Blob versus Chucky. Now let's go back and discuss our uh, ensembles as a whole. Um, hitting up the Blob. We have a lot of characters in the Blob. Yes, we do. ensembles in horror but this one is you know like what you think of like as far as like a big ensemble right um it's close to a blockbuster horror as you kind of get correct and i i really really appreciate the fact that you're following um i'm trying to think of characters names here um you got brian and meg is our right but I, i'm even going back to is it paul um, oh paul we got a steven seagal with paul right where right. we really think like he's going to be our main dude yeah it's it's actually um it's actually right out of like a, a Hitchcock move, you know. Um, you think you've got a hero, and then the the, the point there mm. being if, if this character could die, anybody could die. That's a really good point. My question, though, even though I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves and talk about the kills, when we are given that uh, flipping the script, killing off who we assume right. is going to be no, our main dude, why is Meg not slurped up when she sees I know, him? I know. She like falls, she pa- yeah. passes out. Why? Right next to the blob. I, the blob it was a big flaw for me. Yeah, she was right there. Yeah. I didn't really understand that. Um, but beyond our main characters, was it too much? Do you feel like you got to know the ensemble? I thought they did a fantastic job of setting up a character, giving us a little bit of what the character wants, mm. and then getting rid of them. My other example would be the sheriff. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought we got exactly what we needed to from that character. Um, we know that he, he doesn't appreciate um, Flag. Is it Flag? Randall Flag is our Johnny Drama, Kevin Dillon. Right, Kevin Dillon's character. And then we also know that he's got the hots for the, the diner owner. Fran. Fran. So I... Who had more chemistry? Fran and the sheriff or Meg and Dillon or Brian? I, I kind of feel like there was something way more romantic about the sheriff and, and the diner. Completely agree. Paul DeMunn's Herb, the sheriff, right. I feel like is one of the one of the hearts of this entire movie yes. where I almost feel robbed having not gotten to see his death. You know, I, I feel like mm, I really, it was know, a little abrupt. Yeah, plus the, the payoff, um, which could have been, maybe if they moved a little bit later, because I don't know as far as like the, the timeline and act, exact time, but, you know, when she says, you know, I'm off at 11, I guess that probably would have been around that time. And that's why he was on his way there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was sort of... Of course, me. just when Randall shows up, I need a sandwich. Right. All right, I got you. And then you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> what? That's what I found. Randall knows everybody in town. And he has kind of a really interesting rapport with most of the figures. It's like he is, he is the guy. The sheriff knows him. Granted, the deputy hates him. But the sheriff had a little, like, I'm trying to help you here. You're 18 now. You do something else stupid, you're, you're locked up. This is on your record. You're in the Matrix, I think is what he said. Yeah, I thought that was an actually pretty fun little moment there where we're learning more about characters there that we know, like, how how old are uh, and who Flag is, you know? he's And it was a really fun little exchange. The sheriff was almost like it was a cat and mouse type of a thing where he's like, he, he could have played it off differently. He could have been like, I hate this kid. Mm-hmm, right. Like, like the deputy pretty yeah. much does. Oh, right. Correct. Um. Other secondary characters? Because I agree with you. I feel like you got a sense of most of the ones where we actually get good kills. Yeah. You get a good sense of them. So um, somebody who has, um, myself, been involved in the improv community here in Chicago for a long time would recognize Reverend Meeker. Ah. The famous Del Close, Close. yes. Um, Which I thought, as far as a secondary character, 
um, was also a fun the way they injected him into the scene at the drugstore right where he's just there like and we now know we know like what type of um, reverend he is he's very he knows everybody by their name he goes to the football games that's right he, he's setting up the whole um, almost 1950s um, don't have sex right right um, even though the kid is there to be responsible with the condom that's a good point um, but then he lies about right. this is not for me it's for my sets, buddy sets um, Donovan and plus, it is kind of interesting that he does play the Reverend. We'll talk about it more when we get to the deeper meanings, yeah. but the juxtaposition of uh, religion versus right. science, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's coming from the sky. You got God up there, and then you got the blob coming from the sky, too. Right. Um, but, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was a, another great secondary character. I also thought that um, the pharmacist, uh, played by Art LaFleur. Yes, Mr. the dad, Ryan. too. Yeah. He's great. He was fantastic. You see a lot of people that go on to be character actors in future horrors yeah. as well. And certainly, um, who was it? The uh, Dunn, right? Demons, uh, the, the sheriff, he was in Walking Dead, right? Yes, he had a big part in Walking the Dead. to the screenwriter, Frank Darabont, Oh, there you go. Yeah, who developed Walking Dead for television and then left after six seasons. I kind of summed it up as like, while there are certainly some cheesy moments and marginally stock characters, the interactions were compelling enough that I see it as a win for the film as a whole, for the ensemble. Yeah. I think it's one of its strengths. Yeah. Um, and I certainly feel like it shares a lot of the dynamics that Stranger Things does in terms of the small town, everybody knowing each other. You got the sheriff that's very right. influential. Town Hawkins, and it could have been the same place, you know? And in fact, where is the town? It is Arborville, California. I California. For a while there, when I was first watching it, I thought, is this Colorado? But um, I think it's, it's California. I looked it up, and apparently Arborville is like a subsection of Long Beach, but I didn't oh, get the sense that oh, they were near the ocean yeah, at all. Yeah, I thought so. it was Colorado. Acting abilities? Certainly it's interesting that Del Close is an acting coach, right? Yeah. So you can't really say shit about that. <laughs> and, um, I actually thought even Kevin Dillon, um, who you don't really consider, and this is just unfortunate, a leading man. Right. Uh, the Johnny Drama. Yes, in the role. Absolutely. Right. Uh, he was contextually appropriate. Let's, yeah. let's put it that way. And, you know, as a matter of fact, um, um, I believe he wasn't their first choice. Ah. Uh. Um, Steve McQueen's son. No kidding. Up for the role, which would have been fun because Steve McQueen being an original. That's right. So I, I thought that was fun, and that um, the uh, another fun little tidbit here is that the actual motorcycle that um, Kevin Dillon's character Clark yeah. is riding is a Triumph. Oh. Which then put you to the Great Escape. Steve McQueen. Holy cow. Um, you, br you bring up the motorcycle incident because I do feel like Kevin did as much as he could given certain maybe flaws yeah. in the script, right. like that first scene with the motorcycle. Certainly they were trying to come full circle where he's able to pull off that yeah. jump later on. What was really fun about that was that the, the editing at the top, where they're cutting back and forth between the football game, you know? You oh, yeah. Two heroes here, mm -hmm. and, and then it's almost as he's, he's being cheered on, but he fails and Oh, that's a good point. I'm not sure I was super conscious of that, but you're, you're right. You have the outsider versus the mainstream right. hero. And then, of course, yeah. Paul gets slurped up in possibly my favorite kill, which we'll get to oh, that yeah. later. Um, there's two other characters I just want to talk about briefly. I think Scott Jeschke, who we, we brought up, who was buying the condoms, is, is great death. And he also, like, you understand what he is. He's a sleaze bag, but at the same he's time, a he's a good friend, it seemed like. He's a good friend, but then we find out, like, Yes, indeed. Like Roofy cocktails. <laughs> yes, like a little Cosby situation yeah, going on the back. That, his girlfriend, who he's, or maybe, I, I was, it was implied, I think, that they were yeah. his, she had his ring, right? Right. So, also very One of many of his rings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she passes out, and he started to undress her. That's true. So yes, I'm not sure. Yeah, no, no. He definitely deserved to die, but I was rooting for that death. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's some stock characters where, like, you get the sleaze bag and you're like, eh, he's going to die. Everyone knows he's going to die, but I don't really care. I kind of like it. I enjoyed it. I, I was, yeah. I love to hate him. Let's I put think, it that way. Yeah, I think that's the biggest difference between a monster film and a slasher film is that you're kind of like rooting for the, like, the yes. deaths in, in the. Um, oh, that's in the a good way to put film. it. Uh, what about the little brothers? They had a you know big what was part. Yeah, I thought they were twins for yeah, a while. Exactly. Not twins, they're friends, not brothers. I struggled finding both of their names. I know the one that dies is Kevin. Right. I, didn't get the, I couldn't find the other guy's name. They kill a kid. 
I love that. I love that. We'll talk more about that because when we talk about the scariest, that's like that's contending for me. Um, but I enjoyed them, and I especially saw the callback to Stranger Things when they're in the movie theater. Right? Yeah. It was very reminiscent of the opening shots of Stranger Things Absolutely. season three. Which would be Stranger Things doing a, like a, an homage, an homage to, them. to them. Yeah. But I believe in the original flop there was a big movie theater. Ah. I think it was you know a tip to that as well. So it's just you know just. There, there is something kind of intimidating or there's a vulnerability to it. We see it with these scary shootings, right? I mean, even the Joker's about to come out and there's a lot of talk about uh, movie theaters are vulnerable spots. So I think this is one of the first movies to realize, oh my gosh, people could be taken out pretty swiftly yeah. in a horrific way at a movie theater. Yeah, people um, are in the dark and they're, they're, they're panicking. And absorbed and usually, panicking. distracted, right? Doesn't the one kid fall? He almost gets, or he does get a little trampled. Yes. Yeah. No. The the panic that ensues is it's almost as scary as the monster itself to just see people people's desire for survival over all else. Um, let's talk one last thing about the uh, diversity of the ensemble. Right. What do you see there? What do you think? Well, um, for the most part, this was a white. Yes, I will say that Doctor Meadows. Yes. Was a. Um, a bigger character. Yeah, so, Joe Seneca, and he was an interesting character. He wasn't your run-of-the-mill sort of scientist. Right. Um, I found he very compelling as well. But he is the only person of color in the whole movie. Oh, there's somebody else? Did I miss it? The mechanic. I missed the mechanic. The what mechanic was his role? Friend was the one who lent the tools to oh, the Okay. Okay. Pretty much a badass. All right. Remember? Um, Not as well. Uh, for some reason, that, that escaped me. Um, but I'm glad you reminded me of it because at this stage, we do learn that this Joe Seneca's uh, Dr. Meadows is evil. Like, so I'm glad that um, Just, yeah. the only evil human in it isn't represented as such. Right. So I'm glad right. there is more diversity than I thought. But other than an African-American figure, we got nothing else cooking there, right? No. We're, we're small town California at that time. So that makes sense. So let's bust a move over to the smaller ensemble that is in Child's Play. Yes, please. Uh, we have a very close-knit family. So close-knit, in fact, there's only two of them. Right. Um, which I think is, is kind of interesting. We'll talk more about that when we get to the deeper meanings. Uh, what do you think about the, the dynamics between the mother and son? Did you buy them as mother and son? You know, um, yes, I did. Um, I, I think they were trying to set up that, you know, they don't get to spend as much time together as they would right. like. But I definitely thought, you know, she was doing her best. You know, like she was basically giving him everything that he wanted. Yes, that's true. Uh, she was buying his affection. Right. But, but did, you, did you not buy them? I bought them. Okay. I bought them even more than the new one, which that can yes. be its own month of comparing and contrasting OGs to, to uh, the reboots. But I found the vulnerability of the kid startling. I hadn't seen Child's Play for years. I, I had forgotten a lot about it, and I certainly was overwhelmed by the new one in my head. Um, but I thought that kid was perfect. Yeah. And with the exception of Seventh Heaven, I haven't seen that mom and a lot of other stuff. And I think she's actually pretty decent. Yeah, I, think... I think she's mostly known for that. But I thought her performance was, was really great. Yeah, no, I'm with you on that. What about the detective, though? Chris Sarandon. Were you buying him? Did you care about him when he's getting, like, messed around with Chucky in the toppled-over car? Something about him seemed off. Like, I don't know Artifice. why. He felt like a dirty cop, but he ah. just felt like a dirty cop. Well, he was hitting on her, yeah, for that's one. True. That's... He did rescue her, though, right? Yeah, yeah, but that is a trope that hopefully we can get away from when the cop is always, you know, hitting on the victim. Right. Um, but at least he had an open mind, because she does have a kid, so... You gotta give him a little bit of credit there. Was there anybody else like notable? You know, the best friend at the Oh, the best friend Maggie, who, yes. Who um has not been at that very long. A Annie Maggie. I think uh as even as an actor, she's fantastic. Yeah, agree. Um have you seen her in anything else? Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, 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 there you go. Um, and I think she's in some other um oh man, I'm blanking. But yeah, yeah. I, she's just one of those familiar faces. You're like, where where do I know her from? You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, she was very appealing, great voice, and I think she executed the fear. And for me, when we talk about the scariest moments, she was part of that. Not necessarily her death, right. either. Because um, I'm going to be honest with you, when we talk about the death, she's yeah. got some flaws. It's, it's, it's interesting, because yeah, I had seen this a couple years ago, and it definitely, when, you, when you're 
preparing when you're watching so you look at it differently you're preparing for like a podcast that's true so then yeah then you're, you're a little bit more critical and, and, and I you know you notice things which is fine that you might otherwise just accept right. and right. let wash over you but yeah they, they stick out like sore thumbs um, what about the voodoo guy what about the guy that ultimately taught him the ways of the voodoo Right. Um, like, although I didn't remember him being like like a good dude. Yeah, relatively. relatively I mean, he is yeah. dabbling in the dark arts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, but you know, he actually cares about this kid. He doesn't know. He, that's he true. Doesn't want um, Charles Lee Ray to be, you know, doing this for evil. He even says, right. you, you wanted a bad student. Why did? Because we were assuming he's the one that taught him the incantation that's that exactly got right. him into Chucky's body to begin with, exactly or right. Buddy's body. Yeah, uh, I just find it really interesting that this serial killer has so many friends. <laughs> you know, that's that's something that uh, kind of gets to me. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I did like that guy. I thought he was entertaining to watch um, as well. I feel like the weakest link is Chris Sarandon. Yeah. Detective Mike Norris, not Ooh, so great. What did you think about his, it almost felt like his partner? Um, oh, at the end, yeah, where you really yeah, get a sense of his partner. Him, you see him pop in throughout, yeah. especially in I don't feel like they were given sufficient yeah. like di dynamism. I right. didn't really get a sense of how they interacted with one another. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't care. I mean, I think it boils back down to I didn't care about Detective Norris sure. enough to give a shit about his nope. friends, sort of thing. And yeah. the, he didn't. His buddy didn't have like interesting enough lines or moments that yeah. I really he needed, noticed him. He needed more of a, a save the cat moment. Yes, absolutely. I was not getting any of that from him. There is no. one other notable character, um, the psychiatrist, the doctor. Oh, who yeah, yeah. pretty much absconds with her child when he yeah. sees that... He was an interesting character. Um, he, as soon as you're introduced to him, you're like, ah, who is this? Who is this crazy? Yeah. But did he mean well? Did he? He no, did. I'm he asking, did. I'm yeah, I don't... Uh, uh, I didn't like him no, as a person. I facility, and I thought the, the room that they even put, put Andy in was a bit extreme. Cold, exactly. Yes. I felt more like a prison than a... I don't know. Nice place you should put a little seven-year-old uh, while he's going through trauma. Um, all right, let's pop back to the blob. Uh, before, of course, at the end we'll we'll tally up the scores here. Yeah. I don't I don't know if you've scored them yet. I did. But okay. I didn't them up. All right. Fair enough. I just want to talk a little bit more about the surviving characters because it's such a trope of horror films to have the final figures, if, as if you will, um, and talk about what got them there more than anything else. How did they get there? Right. Um, so when we talk about the blob. Our final figures are Randall Flagg and Meg Penny. Uh, what are their means of escape? Do you remember how, how the, uh, the climactic scene, how do they sure, escape? Sure, they, um, so it all happens in, in that truck that gets turned over. A snow-making truck, yeah. <laughs> which I guess does lend credence to then being in Southern California, close to Long Beach, because that's not a sort of truck you'd see a lot of places, right? Not something that a lot of people are, are looking for. That's the point. Fake snow. Um, but yeah, uh, what, what do we got? We got Randall coming in there with the snow. Who? But who's the, ultimately the one that figures out the Achilles heel of the blob? That's Penny. She it is Meg, right? Oh, sorry. Meg Penny. Penny's her last yes, name. Meg Penny. Um, I believe she noticed it from being in the cooler earlier that um, it doesn't light. And, and the fire extinguisher. Exactly. Um, is that CO2? Oh, not, not a scientist. What, what, what are they shooting at it? Yeah. Okay. All right, fair enough. Whatever the cold factor is right. within that, uh, that's what gets... The blob pissed off. Right. Um, so it's interesting we have the female character, because we can talk about gender issues always, that really sauces it out. But who's the hero at the end of our final figures? Because we do have them both surviving, right? Randall right. and Penny. I'll just go over this in my head really quick, because she actually gets stuck to the truck. Right. The flag gets her down. Indeed. So Flag's about to get squelched. He's about right. to get smushed when he's in the truck. She that topples over. She distracts it with the AK, right. starts shooting at the blob like a mad woman. And then she tries to jump, jump off the truck, mm -hmm. gets caught up in it. Mm -hmm. But then he saves the day, right? Yeah. He gets her off. So for a second there, I thought, you know, we had a proper final girl right. that was saving the day. Uh, but ultimately, we got a, a standard damsel in distress being saved by him. Granted, they saved each other, so there's a little bit of redeeming qualities there. Um, but I kind of wish maybe it went the other way. She drove the truck into him. He distracted, and maybe she saved him. Would have been a little more unique, perhaps. Determination to survive. When I when I look at final figures, I like to know that they want to live, that they want to persist. Did you feel like Megan Randall like liked life? They wanted to go on, or was it obligatory to the story? Well, you know, that's a that's a really great question because I 
think for him, he didn't really have much going for him. I agree. But I, I think um, he's got ten, nine, ten. I, I think she's got a bright future, and I think she wanted to. I mean, every, everything she knows and cares about is in this town. I think that's the irony of it. I think you're absolutely right. He has the bleaker future, but I think he has more of a will to live than she does because remember he jumps off of the transport truck and says, come on, you want to live? Granted, she is wrangled in by her familial devotions. So that's why she's going in. But even in the moment that her brother gets sucked in and she jumps back into the water to sure death, right? Or any circumstance, she just knows he's done and I'm about to die too. I'm just sacrificing myself. I felt like there was a little fatalism with her. I didn't necessarily. I mean, she was the cheerleader. Randall at least is like brooding. He knows himself. She is more of this like shallow character that I think gets to know herself over the course of the movie in a way that he already knew himself. Yeah, although I would say that he definitely, um, uh, by the end of the film, was on a different path. You know, so he knew himself. Right. But he finally was helping others. Yeah, and I think she, or he fleshed her out a little bit too, right, right. gave her a little more uh, layers on top of the one that we saw at the top. <laughs> um, okay, iconic status. In the, in the annals of history, where does it stand? Is the blob something everybody knows about? Is the blob ubiquitous? Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. But I would say it was you know because of the original film that people know the blob. Uh, I think that um, they did a great job reintroducing the blob in 1988, a better movie. And Why wasn't there a sequel? I think it fell through. I think that they wanted to. I know because the first one had a sequel, Beware the Blob. Right. Granted, it was 1955 to a 1972 jump. I thought I heard somewhere that they did want to do a sequel to this one. I don't know what happened. I heard it didn't make the money that it needed to make. Um, There wasn't a lot of horror movies like they turn turn them out now, but they were expecting a much bigger return. Um, And there was some pretty big scenes. We saw where the money was going. You saw where that production actually was. Um, and certainly now it's, I think it's a huge cult classic. I don't know if people would remember the old one like you suggest, maybe. Um, I certainly learned about the 1988 blah before I realized it was based on an old one. Oh, okay. um, but you never know. Um, beyond that, I would say its iconic status lives in stuff like Stranger Things. You're going you're right. to see homages to it. You're going to see that concept manifest in different ways. Yeah, there was... True, yeah. There was murmurs of a Rob Zombie remake of it, which I think would be absolutely amazing. I, I heard uh, Simon West, the, uh, the filmmaker who, um, oh man, I can't even think of his name now. I've been, for years I've heard that there, you know, somebody wanted to redo the blog because just as far as technology, we've come so far. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Yeah. That's something I want to ask you. Do you think it would have been more interesting um, in a more populated zone? If they were to do it again, are we seeing Chicago versus Arborville or... Los Angeles get consumed versus yeah, a smaller town. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, yeah, that's very true. Let's talk about um, the final figures in Child's Play briefly. Um, what do you think? Do they want to live? Who wants to live more, the mom or the son? Do they have a, a will to live in this world? I think that's interesting. I, I think the mom has a will to live because of her son. Right? She's there to protect her son. I agree. I think that's She's definitely motivated by him. Uh, what about some of the other characters? Is, Sar- is Sarandon, does he want to live? I don't, I don't know. He is a final figure, sadly. I don't think that we knew that enough. I don't know. We didn't know enough about his background to be like, what kind of, I mean. That's good. That's true. Yeah. Means of escape. How do they actually get out of it at the end? How do they become those um, final figures? So, interesting enough, they, they learn how to kill. Okay, I know. Remind us. They learn how to kill his heart. Uh, the heart of a doll? I mean, right. what are we talking about here? Well, with the movies, Where the heart would be? Right, right, exactly. Because I felt like you may have hit it a thousand times. Before. Yeah. You, before you actually see it, it's confirmed that blood comes out. Indeed. And, of course, he's dismembered first. He loses yeah, an eye. He's burnt doesn't up. Doesn't that doesn't stop him. Because his heart's still going. He, a shot to the heart. A little anticlimactic for me, you know? I would have I preferred the dismemberment and him just, like, forever being unable to. Like, just being stuck in there as nothing. Now do you believe me? To his buddy? That was his buddy's, like, one yeah. good moment. 
Um, so yeah, I, everyone's pretty determined to survive in this one. She's willing to do anything for her son. Um, granted, again, just like in the blob, you got the guy coming in to save the girl again. Nothing new there. So female empowerment is slightened a bit. Um, in terms of acting ability, we kind of touched on it. I feel like with the exception of Saranen, everybody was, was hitting their marks. Um, the kid witnesses the murder of the juvie and the warden that I feel like poor Andy is going to be scarred for life after this. Well, yes. Does he become, in a future incarnation, a killer himself, you know? Well, they, they touch on it a little bit in the sequels. Okay. What, what, what happens with Andy? I'm not, uh, I'm not familiar with by that. the third one, he is in a military school. Uh, oh. Like, yeah, he's, he's Same like, actor? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Okay. Um, you know, I haven't seen those sequels in such a long time, but the point is, yeah, he has had a rough go at life. And I think that there were talks, again, I haven't watched all the sequels. I need to see Cult of Chucky, which I think may have been the last one, that, that I think they were going to bring back as many original characters as they could. Oh, that's so, awesome. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's nice to know that, and Don Mancini has written all of them, so he's been following the character. He knows that this kid has seen a lot, and it's going to affect his life. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you there. And as we talked about, I feel like the tenderness of this actor versus the kid in the new one, who I liked, he was great, but he was a tough guy. I feel like Andy in the old version and the original needed Buddy in a way that the new kid didn't. You know, I feel like there was a, a loneliness in him, which we'll touch on more when we talk about uh, deeper meanings. And certainly I would say the best line goes to the kid when he says, this is the end, friend. Yeah. Like, where is he coming up with that? <laughs> That's just too good. Uh, okay, let's talk about the settings a little bit. Uh, we have a, a little bit, but I'd like to go a little more in-depth in the settings and perhaps the deeper meanings of them. So we have the sleepy town in the blob uh, with a quaint diner in the pharmacy. We pretty much get to go all over the town. Everyone seems to know, know everyone else, which adds a lot thematically as so many of them literally become the same, right? Everybody knows each other, but then everybody becomes each other in this movie in an interesting way. Um, do you think that is any sort of commentary on what a small town does to people? Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. shelters you maybe in a bad way? Is it negative connotations? What do you think? Yes, yes to all of that. I also think that this was, um, you know, echoing some of the, the culture of the 1950s, you know, kind mm -hmm. of looking at how um, everyone went sort of just you know, had the same life. Everyone wanted. That's a good the point. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Ultimately, they're living the same yeah. existence. It's There's the not. dream, right? That's true. To become yeah. like everybody else, keeping yeah. up with the Joneses style. I hadn't exactly. thought about that. Um, the uniqueness of the set, does this give it any bonus points here? Do you feel like the. Uh, um, Uniqueness of Arborville, California really brought anything. Some of the set pieces were amazing, right? I thought the sewer scene was great when yes, he does the I, motorcycle I said, in the sewer. I said from the movie theater to the sewer, we're getting a lot of these really fun set pieces. Even the diner's kitchen, oh, I yeah. felt like oh, yeah, but the, the gross. Blender, the, the garbage disposal, whatever that was in that, or it felt like a garbage disposal. The kitchens disposal. are like dirty and gross yeah, more, most of the time. Yeah, so. So yeah, with a couple of them, I feel like we got to see stuff that was fresh, certainly for 1988 which is as a whole, we're used to kind of a town. It didn't yeah. bring us like anywhere new, even though it no. did some new things no. with some standard spots. Correct, even in the, the opening man, we, we had a long opening sequence of this movie where it was just shots of the town. Oh yeah. And then you're like, why? where is everybody? And then they establish that they're all, everyone in the town is at a football game. Contrasting to Child's Play's Chicago right yeah. here. Um, what do you think they did with the city? Did they utilize it? Um, was it a character in itself? Uh, not as much as it could have been. Okay. I think they only gave you an idea that Chicago was like a bad, one bad, big bad neighborhood. They gave you the idea that right next to the river, like, <laughs> right, on Wacker or whatever they were, was, he even says, that's a bad part of town. And they right. Shot over, and then they cut to her like in these alleys. And, and then when uh, Wabash oh, is apparently right. super dangerous. Yeah, Van Buren and Wabash. And, and then the alley of what I think she works at Marshall Fields, or what it was right. Marshall Fields, that even the, the alley of the Marshall Fields was a bad neighborhood. There's a, the guy oh, that's who's right. selling the, the, the freaking doll <laughs> in the alley. It, I think that they tried to make Chicago look maybe in you know the 80s. I mean, we still get a bad rap and rep, but um, they, 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 I guess the city was more like evoking like evil. I agree with you. I feel like it was disproportionately slummy looking, yeah. seedy. Um, the the only places that seemed affluent were the toy store. That seemed nice, as and well as Marshall's. I, an apartment she probably is not able to afford right. in 1988 on Pine Grove and up. Wrightwood, right? Uh, yes, I lived like a block there. Yeah. For, for four I years, I was very close away uh, from that spot. And it kind of like. Chapman lived in that building. 
Oh wow, that's the, amazing. So the Brewster because that's, that's featured on the poster as well. Yeah. Um, we'll start talking about some of these deaths in a second here. But in terms of uniqueness, do you feel like something was on the Chicago in a way that it wasn't? Well, it was unique in the sense that there haven't been that many Chicago horror films. True. So I, I think, and, and it didn't have to be Chicago. I mean, I don't know, the director, I don't think he's gotten much tie to, or ties to okay. Chicago. And um, I think the idea there that in the 80s, especially with big franchise horror characters, they were trying to make it familiar. Okay. They were trying to, they're like, oh, the Midwest, you know, Freddy's from, like, Ohio, uh, Michael Myers from right. Illinois. So maybe they were just trying to, like, go off of that. Sucks you in more, right? Yeah. Most of the audience yeah, is going to be. America. Exactly. All right, now we get into the juicy stuff, the deeper meanings and metaphors, okay. hitting up the blob. What would you say? What do you think this is, like, a grander representation of? Well, I actually was thinking about this one a lot because I kept, you know, going off of, um, you know, 1988. They were probably still dealing with Reagan, Reaganomics and Cold War. Right. You know, um, but echoing things from the 1950s. So I, I it was a, I didn't really have a clear meaning of the deeper meaning here. I think there's multiple. Yeah. I think you can go a lot of different directions with it, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, some of the uh, news that I looked up in terms of 1988, this was when Robert C. McFarlane, formal national security advisor, pleads guilty in the Iran-Contra case. So ultimately we are being shown how shady government officials can be. be can be Absolutely lies coming from people that you should be trusting that have control Scientists. over our safety, right? Right. National security advisor. This, we should feel safe, but these are the people that are actually causing problems for us. And then, of course, NASA scientists uh, warned the Congress of global warming and the greenhouse effect for the first time in 1988. So you can talk about how your environment is essentially trying to destroy you sure. in a way that maybe you don't see in other, other films, thematically speaking. But also created by Americans. That's true. That is the irony. If you think it's a meteor and then it turns out to actually be... These scientists who are testing weapons on their own people, which is something that happens, right? I believe there was an incident in San Francisco right. where some chemicals were, were released. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. Um, I, I think it was, you know, also coming off of, like, you know, Russian... Um, there was still, like, this weird space race coming from the 60s where satellites and, and monitoring and... Um, the idea of creating a weapon to defeat our enemies that mm. would come from space. And again, also uh, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars. Yeah, no, that's and fair. Ultimately, you do think about when you create a weapon, they're ultimately going to get that same power eventually, probably, right? This is why we got beef with Iran and North Korea right now. We don't want them to have that same blob we have, the ability to destroy them in the same way we can destroy them. Um, so yeah, kind of like retreading what you just said, I do feel like it has a lot to do with the enemy within, but in multiple ways. Um, certainly when it is discovered that the blob is actually a government weapon being tested on its own population, it becomes clear that the movie is suggesting the motives of a larger, lesser seen entity um, can oftentimes not be trusted, that we shouldn't necessarily trust those with power um, as well. Uh, the blob looks like living guts. I brought this up in the beginning with the, with the yeah. aesthetic. So to me, it's like, Certainly trying to pull in teenagers, as most horror films do. So I feel like it's like this manifestation of the inner turmoil, all the, the, uh, all the chemicals that are released when you're coming through puberty, coming up, about to graduate high school, uh, falling in love with a girl or, or boy or whatever, um, as you see at the top when he's like, should I ask her out, should I ask her out? I feel like it is a manifestation of like, it's, it's, a, it's a corporeal, that nervous feeling in your stomach. Right. You know, that's what I see. I see it's like, oh, the hardest part's about realizing oneself and will I ever actually be a shell or will I always be this this amorphous blob even to myself you know I don't know yeah. that's that's kind of what I was seeing cooking in there you know and after I was you know focusing too much on what cold war germ warfare sure this could have been the meaning I was also trying to like dig deeper within like what was the film the filmmaker trying to, to do with the whole garden tool massacre the movie within the movie the horror movie within the movie, you know, in the movie theater, they even referenced twice reference. Wasn't that Belky? I think Belky is the guy in the movie within the movie. It could have been. I'm pretty sure it was Belky from Perfect Strangers. It could have been. And they but, get. But it was interesting because the two little boys were talking about Garden Tool Massacre. So was there any other social commentary on there about how horror movies um, uh, are are garbage? <laughs> but, then, but then also showing that. that 
other like um, because Steve Miner, I believe, who did the Friday the Thirteenth movie, could have been doing a lot more with his um, with his storytelling. It was mm-hmm. basically just slashers. Oh, so was were they trying to, to make fun of that and say, you know, you you could do something else with horror as far as social commentary? I don't know. I, mean, I see where you're going with that. Yeah, I mean that almost kind of points back to what I'm talking about—the inner turmoil. What yeah. gets people wanting to go to the movies right. to see people get killed? Right? right. It's like an alleviation, a distraction from oneself. It's interesting. Uh, there is studies done that people that get older don't want to watch horror movies as much because they have so much of their own shit going on. Right? right? When you're at that age, yeah, you got that inner stuff, but your external is rather. Not usually. I mean, certainly not in the case of Andy. But your external is, you know, your life is taken care of. Your parents are feeding you. You got, right. you got a house, or a roof over your over yourself to the sleep. Dream. Exactly. Um, so I don't know. There's something to that. And plus, as we brought up, maybe the greenhouse effect, the gardening, maybe there's environmental oh, message involved, like possibly. Um, and then in terms of the deeper meanings, is there anything personally that it, that it says to you? Did you have any personal connection with this movie at all? Yeah. Because this was clearly better than the original. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's lasted with me. It's one that I, I think, you know, gives Child's Play. I think Child's Play might have been the foregone conclusion that this is going to be the most iconic of 1988. But I felt like watching Blood, it really gave it a run for its money. And a lot of that had to do with the deeper meanings and metaphors that were popping up as I was watching it. So, yeah, let's talk about Child's Play and what's going on under the surface there. Um Certainly, we talked a little bit about how it deals with the vulnerability of a child of only one parent, right? Um, and how Andy highlights the power of the parasocial, one-sided relationships that are created, um, the proliferation at that time of kids pretty much having TV as their babysitter, right? Yeah. And not being able to make the same sort of human connections, the safety that's associated with having a one-sided relationship. And certainly in the, uh, in the mind of a child that is exceptionally vulnerable and one that doesn't have a male figure in his life um, is of course going to relate more with, you know, uh, he's, he's got a brother suddenly. Yeah. Yes. Um, exploiting the dark side of the toy industry, especially in the 80s. The, the mm-hmm. I grew up like He-Man, um, G.I. Joe, Smurfs, all of those shows. So the, the, moment, the first moment we see young Andy, I wrote this down, he's watching the good guy's cartoon. Mm-hmm. He's eating the good guy's cereal. Sugar. Lots of sugar, and too. Sugar Three too. spoonfuls of sugar. And he's wearing the good guy's clothing, the same outfit that Chucky and the good guy does wear. This introductory scene establishes how much Andy's happiness is revolved around the brand causing his father, Karen, stress and not being able to afford it. Again, exploiting the dark side of consumerism. I see that entirely, and you got me thinking in a different direction as well, in terms of he is almost like Charles Lee Ray. He is possessed by this character. Like, it's an inverse situation, whereas Andy has been manipulated and possessed by Buddy and everything that Buddy represents and the the marketers behind it own him in every way. And then you got the inverse happening with Charles Lee Ray actually in the doll, the external versus the internal. Oh, interesting. Also, in terms of that specific year that I think relates to this, um, and certainly talking about where we meet Andy with him watching TV, um, is that 90% of the U.S. households at that time had at least one television. So this is really the first time in history where everyone is absorbed in this really ironically disconnected. We talk about it with phones now, how we're, we're losing a sense of humanity. This is, the, this is the beginning of it, right? Because when radio is, is just, you know, you could sit around and listen with people, but TV, eye contact is lost with real people. I think that eye contact thing is, is a big part of it. And when a kid can look Chucky in the eyes, even if they're plastic, that means a lot. All right, I think we did well. There is anything else we want to talk about? Deeper meanings? Um, no, not for that. I, I, I thought that one was All right, let's talk about the fright factors and the kills um heading back up to the blob we have a kill count of 27 and i want to thank dead meat 
uh, YouTube channel for helping me find some of these kill counts. I didn't have to do the math crazily as I was watching. Yes. Um, quality kills. I feel like there was some exceptional deaths in the blob. I enjoyed the way people died in this movie much more than Child's Play. Um, mostly because of the their practical practical effects. Um, man, that was such a cool scene when the old timer at the beginning runs up to Kevin Dillon and just starts hacking on his own hand. Oh, that's right. Right. Yes. I think that's the first time you really see that type of violence in this movie. Did you think he would have been fine if he hacked off a hand? Would he have survived? No. No. It was already in the blood, been. sort of. Well, maybe. I mean, I think that the blob would have gone after. Okay. All right. Is, do you think the blob's like that fast at that stage when it's so small? Maybe. I don't know. I, but yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Super graphic when he's hacking at his own hand. Um, for me, I felt like Paul's death was the best death. I don't know about you. But oh, yeah. he sees yeah. the homeless person dissolving on the bed and he goes to call the sheriff. He looks up and it drops on him. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you like yeah. looked was, up at it? It was a great mm. moment. Which, you know what? I thought that he was going to move because they, they established his athleticism. Right. That's like, true. No, that's a really good point. Like he dove and caught the football in the beginning. He couldn't outrun the blob. And the way that he's reaching for Meg, like you could tell there's a transformation going on where he's half blob and half him still. Mm -hmm. You see that again with yeah. the brother in the sewers, where again it seems like they're reaching out for Meg. Save me, save me. But if you save me, you're going to be killing yourself too. Um. Mm. Which is what um, I think it was a chuckle director. He wanted that on purpose to get more of a natural reaction. So when oh. she's really screaming, I think it's because she didn't really know what was going to happen in the effect. It's uh, pretty effective. It's ingrained in my head in a way that none of the kills in Child's Play are ingrained. That moment is there. I also really love Fran's death. As we talked about, yeah, you see the, sh booth. the phone booth getting completely crunched in on her. And the yeah. way that it fills up, I just love oh, yeah. the way that effect worked. Um, and then finally, the cook, as we talked about in the diner, getting yeah. sucked into the sink. Super gory. Super gross. Yeah, there was super a really awesome. fun moment where his limbs were just sort of like gyrating out of the top there. And he's one, of the, he's one of the few characters that you don't really get to know, but he's still got like an amazing death, you know, yeah. versus, versus yeah. a lot of people at the end when, he's, when the blob is ginormous on the streets, just yeah. swatting people down like flies. Yeah, there are a lot of expendables there, but it's not as impacting as that sink one. I oh, felt like... Right. It had a lot of cachet. I also like the moment of um, in the hospital where she reaches for um, Paul's hand and just basically she pulls it off. Oh, that's yeah. right. Yes. Uh, okay. Again, the only problem with my with the Paul is her passing out and then being okay. Next next thing they cut to yeah. is her being walked yeah. out outside. They just set up this amazing thing that anybody could die, and then they sort of in the same moment they're like, oh, except. Yeah, um, our final girl. Exactly. Uh, has she done anything else that I should know about? Yeah, Sean what? Smith. Yeah. Um, a ton of stuff. And she was most, I think, most recently known for her work in the Saw franchise. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Um, let's talk about what is scary about Chucky, because I do think a metaphor is the scariest part um, for me. Yeah. But there are some moments. Uh, there's six deaths, including two of Chucky's, right? Charles Lee Ray dies, and then Chucky dies at the end. Yeah. But really, we only have four ex four deaths of people that shouldn't die, you know? Kind of lame for an 80s horror slasher. Yeah. No, I felt that way. Granted, we do have a kid in it, but uh, I don't know. We had kids in the blob, too. But one of them dies. Right. So I feel like they kind of went they for the gold yeah. in a way that maybe Chucky skirted at this Don't stage. Get. Um, and the kill at the end was somewhat abrupt, I felt like. Not super gruesome. Maggie falling out the window is a good moment, but I don't know what happened to her to get her to fall out the window. I kept freeze-framing. What goes in her eye? Does he throw a knife into it's, her eye? No, it's the good guy's hammer. The good guy's hammer. So okay. The, his mom first got him the, the tool set. For All right. Guys. Um, it wasn't a plastic hammer? No, I, apparently that was... Uh, Legit hammer. hammer. Uh, wow. It was a smaller... Yeah. Like a traditional, um, Do they address that that was in her eye? Because when they're asking, when the cops are asking, it wasn't her eye? Well, no, no, I'm saying they don't address that. Okay. I think that they know that it hit her in the face because they find out that it, the, um, it belonged to the son. 
It was lodged in there though, right? I don't think it was. No? Lodged. Okay, all right. Oh, really? It was so quick. I missed that. And she's trying to grab things. All right, fair enough. Disoriented. The only problem with that stunt there is that she falls out the window backwards, and when you see her, she's face, she's face down on the, on the car. Okay, yeah. that's. I didn't notice that, but yeah, good eye, good eye. Uh, one thing we kind of actually skipped over on the blob. Do you remember the music from the blob at all? We're talking about Fright Factor. Do you feel like there was uh, an ambient um, music that added to the fear of it? I don't think so. I didn't find anything noticeable no, with it either. No. I feel like this is one area where Child's Play does succeed a little bit better. I wouldn't say that the music is as iconic as something like uh, Friday or right. Halloween, but it does have like this lullaby, like yeah. uh, kids crank sort of music box sort of yeah. sort of theme song that I actually do think is a little spooky. Um, has a sinister sinister understone undertones within it. Um, so what what do you say is the scariest scene? Yes. Because there's a, there's an actual like jump element to that. I agree. <laughs> he even swears at her. Um, and then aside from that, maybe again when he's chasing Andy in the hall. Is that how that was? Yeah, when he's all charred up and he's yeah. about to stab Andy. That that's pretty scary. Just because it's the kid so vulnerable, really, for the first time we've seen. Uh, but I, I, my initial reaction was the batteries falling out, yeah. and then him like rolling under the couch yeah. all awkwardly. Yeah. Um, the only other moment that really I found creepy, maybe more than scary, and I felt like, all right, this is this is why this is horror beyond the obvious, um, is the scene where she's sitting with Andy at his bed after hearing him talk to her, oh, or talk yeah. to the doll. Yeah. She's like, what's going on here? You have to stop this. There's nobody in here. He's like, no, mom, mom, there is. His name is Charles Lee Ray. She's like, no, you can't be doing this. And she yells at him. Um, and you could see he's like taken aback. And then you can tell that Charles Lee Ray is actually talking to the kid. We can't hear it, right. but he's telling Andy what to tell his mom to that, that, satiate her, to get her the hell out of there. So in a way that the doll is possessed now, in that moment it felt to me like, uh-oh, mm. we have an extension of that possession in the kid for the first time. Right. It felt really creepy the way he just switched gears so quick and was obviously being fed lines by Chucky, like a little earpiece in. Was, we don't hear what Chucky's saying because the mom's there, so you, he's not talking, obviously, but... He's intuiting it to Andy. No, you're right. That, and that was a very creepy scene just because you're hearing from a child that this woman deserved to fall out the window or get pushed out the window. Well, let's do some math. Maybe. Okay. Um, well, for antagonists, um, you want to start with Child's Play or are we starting with the blob? Um, yeah, let's do a rundown of the blob. Say okay. what we gave for each of those. Okay, for the blob, for antagonists, four. I gave it three pentagrams out of four. Okay. Ensemble, I give it a four. Ensemble, I gave this puppy a 3.5 because I really did quite enjoy most of them. Right. Uh, surviving characters, a three. Two. Okay. Two. I felt like they were maybe the weakest of the cast, personally. <laughs> uh, settings, three. Three as well. Okay. I'm with you on that one. Um, deeper meaning, I only gave it two. Wow, I gave it 3.5 okay. because I was finding that inner turmoil really appealing at the time, especially when I was thinking about the audience that it was trying to get, okay. what it yeah. was trying to say to them. The Fright Factor? Two. 3.5. It got me. I don't know. that uh, Some of those deaths, yeah. they got me. Um, I thought it was, I mean, super creative. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess I'm just really hypercritical of being scared in a horror movie. Like, That's fair. Yeah. I, the, un, the unthinking monsters is, like, much scarier to me than, like, a Godzilla, especially these new ones where you he's thinking and yeah. stuff like that. I love it when it's just it's a killing it's machine slowly, sort of thing. So that's a total of 18.5 for me an on the blob. And an 18 for me. All right. That's 36.5. 36.5. Let's see if Child's Play can contend for antagonist. What would you give it? Okay, three. I gave it a four. Okay. I feel like everyone knows Chucky more than the blob. You know? Yes. Oh, I feel like I mean, in terms yes, of the bad guy, you, he's, he's at the top of the top of the heap. Ensemble, two. Three. I gave it a three. <laughs> that's real, fair. Cruel after rewatching. Yeah. You're, you're not entirely wrong there. Yeah, I, I see it. Uh, surviving characters, I did like them probably the most of the ensemble, but I gave that a 2.5. I gave it a 2. Yeah, Sarandon brings that one down, yeah. obviously. Sorry, Chris. Sorry, Chris. Uh, setting? 2. I give it a 3. I'm pretty generous. Maybe i got to be a little harder on this. <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. Uh, deeper meanings, I give it a 4. 
I gave a three. Okay. I did give a three. Yeah, no. After talking with you, I'd probably bump it a little bit, but I initially gave it that three. Um, and then finally, Fright Factor? Two. I gave it two five. Okay. So it's very obvious. I got 17.5. And that's both less than what we gave. Yeah. The Blob, the Blob is the most iconic of 1988. The bell has rung. You gotta see 1988's The Blob. It's amazing. It's iconic in the best way. Yeah, and you know what's funny is that I, um, when I was looking, like, where am I gonna watch The Blob? And I went out to Amazon Prime, and this month, I think it's actually like even like October, the end of this month, it's being released on Blu-ray finally. Outstanding. Yeah. This is perfect timing then for you I'm, people I'm out there. Pick it up. I'm gonna pick up the Blu-ray for this. I do dig it, and I'm happy that it won. I'm almost relieved that it won, even though Child's Play takes place in Chicago, and we should be big up in our town. Yeah. I feel like for 1988, remember the blob more. Yeah, just a little bit more. That's that's a good, you know that could be a good month. Candyman yeah. That's true. We will be talking about Candyman very soon. I can't remember the year that it's released, but that is coming up. 95. Okay. I can't remember who I put it against. Uh, but thank you so much for being part of the Icon Showdown podcast, the premiere episode, in fact, uh, where we have determined that the blob is the most iconic of 1988. Um, Chris, tell us about what you got cooking. Well, um, I've, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I've got um, Monster Pulse going on, which is a weekly horror podcast um, that we talk about, uh, you know, horror news, um, recommendations, and uh, and we do some fun lists stuff as well. Like, uh, yeah, no, I'm a fan. I, I just saw you guys release the. Are uh, you going to watch a movie a day for all of October? Yeah, we're doing. We did two different lists. So if you uh, need any recommendations, go over to Monster Pulse on Instagram, and there's going to be a a movie to watch every day for the, the month of October. And then I also am going to be putting new life back into Set and Horror, which is an interview show where I interview people who have, um, in all forms of um, entertainment industry, worked in the horror genre, whether you're a writer or a director. So I've got some... Uh, you're prolific. Stuff. I don't know how you do it. Uh, you got so much insane. in the fire. It's insane. And then you and I, we've got videos coming out. Indeed. We've got, uh, we just released um, Living with Pennywise. Um, and we need to talk about some, some more roommate options. <laughs> Hopefully less makeup. Yeah. And then, um, we've, got, we've, we've got a lot cooking there, too. Indeed. So subscribe to Sea Monsters on YouTube. You can go to youtube.com slash S-E-E-M-O-N-S-T-E-R-S. Sea Monsters. There's some good stuff on there, people. I highly suggest you, you head on over there. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll shriek, all the above. And, of course, I want you to uh, support this site if you can, if you liked it. Um, by purchasing my novel, Company Dreamer, uh, about the dream recording industry. You can go to companydreamer.com and buy it off Amazon. And uh, I think that's it. Okay. Thanks for having me. Hell yeah, the bell has rung. Yeah.